0: these declarations of who Christ is for us. That in spite of of who we are, in spite of all we've done, in spite of all we continue to do, we have a Savior, we have a, a high priest, we have a Lamb who makes us right with you, God. Lord, as we Turn to your word today. Would you, by the power of your Spirit, open our hearts to hear and to receive it with power and in full conviction with the Holy Spirit? Lord, only you can do these things. And it is an amazing proof of your love and your grace that you do it, that you do reveal yourself to us, that you do. Come into our lives, that you do comfort us and strengthen us in our time of need, and that you give us satisfaction in you. Lord, thank you for these things. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. We'll be uh, starting in verse 4 there and going down to verse 15. Um, As I read here, I'm actually going to add uh, the beginning of verse 1 as well, uh, just because I think it will tie together this whole passage and what it is uh, we're going to learn today. So beginning with uh, chapter 5, verse 1 of 1 John, John says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So now I'm going to move down to verse 4 to our normal passage. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. That is God's word. That is what uh, we're going to study today. There was a a word that was used a lot um, in this passage, and we'll we'll look at it more in a moment. But this word, know, that you may know, you know you have this. This is the confidence you have. You know, when you think about this world that we live in, events and and future, there is confidence. So little assurance and so little confidence that we can actually have in anything. I mean, really, if you think about it, how how much confidence can you really have in any plans that you've made for the future? Any expectations you may have, I mean, are those 100%? Will that really happen? I mean, if you think about it, everything in life, other than what we're going to talk about today, is contingent. It could fall through. It's conditional. I mean, let me just give you quick examples of this. We'll go on vacation if the weather holds up and if my family stays healthy. I'll stay at this job forever if the business doesn't fold and if they don't fire me. You know, just whatever circumstance, whatever scenario in life, No matter how well we plan, no matter what our expectations may be, we cannot really be sure. We can't have confidence or assurance about these future things. But what John is going to show us today is that in all of life's uncertainties, there is one thing we can and should know for certain. We see this. Uh, mainly uh, in verse 13, John kind of sums it up for us. This is the, the key verse of this whole passage. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Did you hear that? John wants you to know that you have eternal life, that your sins are forgiven, that you will spend eternity in heaven, he wants you to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you are truly saved. The, the, the issue here, though, is that we're going to look at today is not necessarily, uh, well, I don't know if I've truly trusted in Jesus. But what we're going to look at today is, well, can I know that I can trust Jesus? The issue today is, okay, I, I've put my faith in Jesus that my sins are forgiven and then that he's purchased for me eternal life. But how do I know that, that Jesus really is the Savior? I mean, that's a pretty big question. Because if Jesus has no foundation in reality as our Savior and Lord, then no amount of faith in Jesus can save us, right? Right? No amount of faith in Him can, can give us eternal life. We kind of see this here, uh, and there in verse 13, those who believe in the name of the Son of God. Uh, in verse 4 there, at the very end it says, uh, who overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And then verse uh, 1 there, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And so that, that's all well and good, but, but what if he isn't the Son of God? What if he isn't the Christ or the, the Savior? It would maybe be a more modern way of saying that. I mean, maybe some of you really struggle with these questions. I know I have. In the past, I have struggled with, what if I'm just believing a fairy tale? <laughs> what if I'm just you know, ignorantly believing what my parents passed down, what my Sunday school teachers told me just so that I would kind of conform to this little Christian culture so that I'd be a good boy. What if that's all Jesus is? I mean, so this is, this is a really big deal. This is a really big deal. It was a very big deal for John's hearers because they had these false teachers coming in saying, oh, Jesus wasn't really the son of God. Jesus wasn't really uh, the, the Savior. So, this is what John wants to teach us today. He wants to prove to us today. John wants to prove that Jesus is God the Son, third member, uh, second member of the Trinity, rather. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And he's God the Son incarnate. That is, he, he took on flesh at that first uh, Noel, that first Christmas. And the second thing is Jesus is the one and only Savior. That's what John wants to prove to us today. And what, what I'm going to show you is that if, if these things are true and if we have believed in him for our forgiveness, for our salvation, then it changes not only uh, our heavenly eternity, but it changes our daily life right here, right now. So this is what we'll look at. And I mean, this is just such a practical issue. Can I believe that Jesus is God, the son incarnate, that he is the one and only savior? So this is what John is going to show us first today. This is what he's going to show us first today. Number one, God has given ample testimony to the identity of Jesus. God, God, the father, as we'll see today, has given ample testimony, that is, more than we should even need, ample testimony to the identity of Jesus as the Son of God and the Savior. Truth be told, there are, uh, I didn't want to put a number on this, I say dozens, maybe hundreds of rock-solid proofs we could look at today that Jesus is God, the Son, and the Savior. But today, what John is going to do is narrow in on three testimonies, three proofs, that Jesus is who he says he is. So what are these three testimonies that God has given? Well, we see those in verses 6 through 8. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree. I am betting a lot of you are like, what is he talking about right now? What is John talking about? What's Jeff talking about? The water, the blood, and the Spirit. We, we need to understand that if John says these things, the word, these words, the water, the blood, the Spirit, as testimonies, This is most likely something that within this church community that he's writing to, or these church communities, this is something that they would have been very familiar with. This would have been a a common discussion for them. And so John was able to use these shorthand terms, the water, the blood, the spirit. And so while it's confusing for us, it wouldn't have been for them. So it's just going to take more work for us to uncover what, what is he talking about. And I would also mention uh, that, that whatever these issues are, the water, the blood, and the spirit, these are issues that were being challenged by the false teachers there. Um, and I, I would say they're issues that are challenged uh, by, by our world today, by, by the media, by the secularists, and even by many uh, who would claim to be Christians. They, they would not agree with these things. And so... Let's look at these. Let's try to uncover uh, what what it is he's talking about with the water, the blood, and the spirit. Let me see here. What do I got there? Matthew? Yeah, I'm not going to worry about that one. No, I am. I'm definitely going to worry about that. <laughs> Sorry. All right. The, the The water is where we'll begin. Okay, and we're going to look at this, and then I'll kind of break down uh, what the testimony is. The water is talking about the water baptism of Jesus by john the baptist okay that that is what i believe and the reason I, i believe that it's talking about the water baptism of jesus is because of the events that occurred during the water baptism of jesus or directly after the water baptism of jesus that prove the identity of jesus and that's the whole point of this text right it's proving who jesus is that he is the son of god that he is the christ the savior so it might be helpful to look at Matthew 3, which I've got up there on the screen. Matthew 3, verses 16 to 17. This kind of tells us what happened at Jesus' baptism. It says there, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. By the way, uh, John one, the Gospel of John. Um, John it says that at, a, at the very least, John saw this uh, the Holy Spirit descend as a dove as well, and we'll look at that in a minute. But I just, here it says that Jesus saw the Holy Spirit descend, but evidently others could see it as well. And then verse seventeen, and behold, a voice from heaven said, "This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased." Okay, so you have Jesus comes, uh, has this water baptism. When he comes up, the heavens open, the Holy Spirit descends, and the Father speaks from heaven, saying explicitly, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. If that doesn't uh, prove the identity of Jesus, if that's not a testimony to the identity of Jesus, I don't know what is. At the water, God confirms that he is both the Son of God and the Savior. Did people get it? Did, did other people recognize what was going on here? Again, I don't know about everyone, but John the Baptist certainly got it. Let's see if I put it there. Yeah, John one twenty nine. The next day, after this baptism, he he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's that's the Savior. Behold the Savior, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, Then then just a couple verses down, uh, verse 33 and 34, John says this. John the Baptist says this. God said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So God had evidently told him this was going to happen. Verse 34, And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. I mean, again, John got it. The heavens opened up when this guy got baptized. The Holy Spirit descended and remained on him. And then God explicitly said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So here we have a historical, tangible proof that Jesus is God the Son and the Savior. So that's the water, this testimony of God about the identity of Jesus. But what about the blood? The blood is talking about the crucifixion and death of Jesus, where his blood was poured out for us, okay? And this is important because the blood, under the, the law of God in the sacrificial system, the blood of a sinless substitute was the only way people could have their sins covered and forgiven. We see things like this in the Old Testament, Leviticus 17, 11. The life, oh, I think I have that, yeah, the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement or covering for your souls for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life so in the sacrificial system the spotless substitute usually a lamb would 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 make covering by shedding its blood in the place of the sinful people but on the cross Jesus the Lamb of God paid that full price. He bore the sins of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So, what we're not going to look at here is, is what happened, like in Jesus' crucifixion, you know, the, the trial and him being nailed to the cross and, and things like that. Because those get a lot of press, and, and I, I think most of you are likely familiar uh, with those things. What doesn't get a lot of press is the things that happened while Jesus hung on the cross. Because there were a handful of supernatural events that happened while Jesus was on the cross that were testimonies to Jesus' identity. Because if you think about it, lots of people shed their blood and die, right? And yet it has zero saving power. In fact, there were quite a few people in that, in that time that were crucified on a cross And no one was saved by their blood. But if this really was the Son of God, if this really was the Savior, then this death, this shedding of blood is really what we need to cover our sins, to make atonement for our souls. So here are the events. I'm not going to read the the passages. It it would just take too long. But here are the the events that happened. These are all in Matthew 27, by the way, if you did want to, to read them. Matthew 27 gives every single one of these um, uh, supernatural events that happened. First, there was darkness. me say, well, darkness, yeah, it got dark. No, it was noon. From noon to 3 p.m., it tells us, there was darkness in the land. Is that normal? Is it supposed to be dark at noon from, from noon to 3 p.m.? No, that's the brightest time of the day. That's when you like, go inside and sit in front of a fan in the summer, right? It, it, this is the brightest time of the day. Yet there was this supernatural darkness. And by the way, it is very significant that darkness in the Bible often signifies God's judgment. So there was a judgment going on while Jesus hung on the cross. The next thing we see there uh, uh, in in the PowerPoint is the temple veil was torn in two. Remember that? The temple veil from top to bottom is torn in two. This was the veil that kept everyone except for the high priest Out of the holy, holy of holies, where the presence of God dwelt, and so this veil is supernaturally torn in two. It's it's known to be have been a very thick veil. Um, uh, Joseph Josephus, rather uh, historian in that day, said two horses couldn't tear this veil. Yet it tore on its own. Like so, if you tied two horses to it, they couldn't have pulled it apart. It was so strong. Yet it while Jesus hung on the cross. And it is significant that this veil was what kept people from the presence of God and that was torn in two as Jesus hung on the cross. The next uh, testimony is the earthquake. There was a huge earthquake that occurred uh, while Jesus hung on the cross. Again, there is symbolic um, significance here, metaphoric uh, significance of this earthquake. I mean, just something earth-shaking, something earth-changing was going on. The ground shook. This was no mere tremor. I've only felt tremors in my life, by the way. But it says, the ground shook, rocks were split. This is huge. Even the tombs were opened by this earthquake. And speaking of tombs opened, that's the final proof we'll talk about. There was a mini-resurrection. Literally, dead people came out of their tombs alive. They, 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 they rose from the dead, and, and they weren't zombies. I mean, they walked around, they went into the holy city, they went into Jerusalem. Now, I would say these people died again, but isn't it significant the one, that the one who says, I am the resurrection and the life, that while he hangs on that cross purchasing salvation, there's a mini-resurrection this is foreshadowing not only Christ's resurrection, that does happen, that could be another proof by the way, that, that Jesus who's laid in a tomb then raises, rises from the dead to eternal life, everlasting life, but this is foreshadowing the everlasting life that will be found in this man for all people, this, this bodily resurrection that would occur but here we have these four proofs, darkness at noon, temple veil torn in two, this giant earthquake, and a mini resurrection. These are all supernatural events that historically occurred while Jesus hung on the cross. Again, if, there, if we need more than this to say, this is this is someone special, this is someone different, then, then we're just not, we're not looking at it, we're not thinking this through. I mean, we believe history books of things that happened, but you know, this This is a history book. This contains history. And you, you wonder, well, did people get it? Did people get that all these things were a sign of who Jesus was? Again, I don't know about everyone, but the Bible tells us that some people did get it, and it may be the people you would least expect. Matthew 27, 54, when the centurion, so this is a Roman centurion, and those who are with him keeping watch watch over Jesus, so this is The Roman centurion and the other soldiers guarding Jesus uh, as he hangs there on the cross. These are the ones who had just crucified him. It says, when they saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. So pagan Roman soldiers, hardened by battle and hardened by these uh, executions that they did, these were executioners, said, we get it, this was the Son of God. They probably weren't very happy about it, uh, that they just crucified the Son of God. But they they say this statement, this truth. So, so far we have the water and the blood, these two historical, tangible events that occurred that give a clear testimony to the identity of Jesus as God the Son and the one and only Savior of the world. And again, these are are historical. These are recorded uh, for us in in a history book. The Bible is far more than a history book, but this is history. And so we, we really should believe these things. I mean, why wouldn't we believe that Jesus is God the Son and that he's the Savior of the world after these testimonies? I'll tell you why not. In our dead, sinful state, we are not able to accept the things of God. We would would rather hold on to our sin, we would rather hold on to our rebellion than believe in this one who died in our place for our sins to purchase eternal life for us because we say, well, I kind of, I almost don't want that to be true. And and so, no, that's foolishness, that's folly to believe In this Jesus, that's where all of us are, that is, without the help of the Spirit. Remember the three that testify, the water, the blood, and the Spirit. So we now look at the Spirit, that is, uh, talking about the Holy Spirit. You can look at the middle of verse 6. It says, The Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Okay, here's what's significant here. The water and the blood were past historical events where God testified to the identity of Jesus. He made it very plain. This is my beloved son. Earthquakes, many reservoirs, you know, all these things happened historically. But we still struggle to believe these things as true But here's what it says. Look at it again uh, up on the screen or in your Bible. The Spirit is the one who testifies. That's present tense. He here and now, presently, currently testifies to the identity of Jesus. So, what that means is you and I, and, and these people as well, they hear the truths about Jesus, the identity of Jesus, that He's the Son of God, He's the Savior of the world, He purchased our salvation, He rose from the dead. We hear those things, those facts, and then the Holy Spirit supernaturally testifies with our spirit, with our heart, that these things are true. It is trustworthy. Because without the Spirit's work, we, we, we've dulled ourselves, we've numbed ourselves. Romans 1 says we suppress the truth about God. But the Spirit is the one who testifies I've kind of put that here. This is the inward witness. This is a current confirmation of the truth about Jesus. And this is exactly, by the way, what Jesus said would happen. He said that this would happen. Uh, We got John 15, 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. He will testify of of who I am, my identity. He will convince you that it's true. Paul says this is exactly what was happening later. You know, we have uh, Jesus' resurrection, and then he sends uh, the disciples to go make disciples of all nations. And this is what's going on, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word... So that's just the facts, the word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So, the Holy Spirit is, in, in this case, uh, from what John is showing us, the third testimony. We have the facts that Jesus is the Son of God, we have the facts that Jesus is the Savior, and then the Holy Spirit is the third testimony saying, It's all true, it's all beautiful, it's all trustworthy. Put your faith in Him. By the way, uh, according to Romans 8 and Galatians 4, the Spirit also testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God when we've trusted in Him. So He not only convinces us of the facts of Jesus, He, he, he confirms, He comforts us that we are truly saved when we trust in Jesus, that we're the children of God, that we can call God Abba, Father. This is, Is a wonderful threefold testimony, and by the way, this threefold testimony is important. There at the end of verse eight, it says these three agree. These what is it? Okay, these three agree. What this is is pointing back to the Old Testament law that any time a fact was to be affirmed or confirmed, especially a criminal charge, there had to be two or three witnesses. In those testimonies, the witnesses had to agree about what happened. These three agree. They say the same thing about Jesus. These trustworthy testimonies say the same thing about Jesus. By the way, that same law was still in effect. They were still using it practically during New Testament times. You can find it, I think, like four times it's mentioned in the New Testament on the evidence of two or three witnesses. The evidence of two or three witnesses. And here we have these three agree. John goes on in verse 9, by the way, to add more weight to this. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. I mean, this is kind of an obvious point. If two or three witnesses is enough to convince us of a, a fact, and these are human witnesses, how much more should we believe the testimony of God of a truth? When these these uh, testimonies agree, he goes on to say in verse ten. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. That means you're calling God a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son. And this is the testimony that God gave. Sorry, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son whoever has the son has life whoever does not have the son of God does not have life that that is an amazing like beautiful set of statements i would say it's a fearsome set of statements That if you today are rejecting the identity of Jesus, that He is truly the Son of God, that He's truly the Savior, died in our place for our sins, rose from the dead on the third day. If you are rejecting those things, you are calling the God of the universe a liar. Because He's the one who said, look, here is my beloved Son with whom I am well placed. He is the one who sent all these testimonies, the earthquake, the darkness, the veil torn, the many, I mean, God was making sure people could see it, and then he even sends his son or sorry, his spirit to confirm these realities. So how do we respond to that? Well, if you have not yet trusted in Jesus, believed in him, then you should. This is trustworthy. It's not a fairy tale. It's not something Christians are trying to use to manipulate their children into obedience. This is saving. This is life changing. This is eternity changing believe in Jesus and your sins are forgiven, the blood makes atonement for your soul. This is beautiful news. It's the good news, right? That's what gospel means. And if you have already trusted in Jesus, know you are saved. I know it's easy to struggle and say, what what if what I'm believing is fake? Yes, I've trusted in Jesus, but, but what if it's not true? No, God has borne ample testimony to the identity of Jesus. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. And by faith, you have eternal life. This is a beautiful reality. And again, I thank God. Like, who are we? I mean, we're we're sinners. We're rebels. And yet he does all this to show us so that we can have eternal life. What a great God. The second thing John wants to show us here, I I think is important, Knowing you have eternal life changes life now. So if if you believe these testimonies of God, if the Spirit is confirming these things, if the Spirit uh, says you are truly a child of God, then it should change your life now, not just your heavenly life, not just life after you die. You see what he says there in verse 13? I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, That you may know that you have eternal life. He doesn't say that you may know that you will have eternal life. That someday eternal life will begin. He says that you may know that you have eternal life right here, right now. This is a wonderful, wonderful reality. I mean when we think about eternal life, again, we just so often think about heaven. Eternal life is something we will graduate to when we die, we think. But that is not what the Bible teaches. If you have trusted in Jesus, you have, right now, eternal life. It's already started. And what I want to show you quickly is that while, while eternal life is about quantity of life, that it will last forever, it is also about quality of life. It changes your emotions, your experiences, and your actions right now. I'll show you two ways it does that. First, this is just implied in eternal life, this word eternal life. You can experience God now if you have eternal life. My, my great hope of heaven is that I will see my Savior face to face and that I will enjoy the God of the universe forever. In him is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. That is my idea of heaven. That is what I long for. That's what I look forward to. And we will get to do that in fullness one day. But the fact is, if you have been saved, if you have eternal life, you can experience God at least in part right here, right now. And I would say even knowing you have eternal life and that you can experience God will in some ways determine how much you will experience God. By knowing you have that relationship, you will be determine how much you interact with Him. Um, John 17, 3, I just mentioned this to you. He's just so explicit. Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they know you. This is a prayer to God uh, the Father. Jesus is praying to God the Father. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is the essence of eternal life. This is what makes eternal life qualitatively different than, than our old natural life. This is eternal life, that they know you. And by the way, there are two Greek words for know. Well, there, there are more than two, but two main Greek words. There's oida and gnosko. Oida is a knowledge of facts. It's academic. Here, I, I understand these things. I can know these things about God. But that is not the word used here. This is gnosko. Gnosko is a knowledge that's gained from the senses. It's an experiential, it's a relational, it's a personal knowledge. So import that into the meaning here. This is eternal life, that they know you. They experience you. They have a personal, intimate relationship with you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I mean, again, my hope of heaven, what makes heaven something amazing is that God will be there and I will get to experience him in fullness. But what's exciting and what should really just direct so much of my life is that I can experience that same God now. The same thing I'm looking forward to, I can taste right now. This is an amazing truth. You don't have to wait until heaven to, to, to see, to perceive the powerful hand of God working in the world and even in your life. You don't have to wait until heaven to experience the comfort of God. I mean, that's one thing we look forward to, right? There will be no pain, there will be no sorrow. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. What if he will wipe away the tears from your eyes right here, right now? I'm not saying nothing sad or difficult will ever happen in your life, but what if you can experience that now? Now? You don't have to wait until heaven to experience the full leading and guidance of God in your life. This is eternal life that you know Him. You experience Him now. So John gives us next a practical way. So that that was, uh, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is what he immediately turns to. Uh, He says there, in these verses, and this is the confidence we have toward him. That is, if we know we have eternal life, this is the confidence we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whenever we ask, we know that we have the request we have asked of him. So here, John, First John says, if you uh, have believed in the name of the Son of God, you can experience God now. You have eternal life. But now he turns to, here's one of the main ways you can experience God. You can pray and experience God answer. And by the way, I would say this is one of the main ways in my personal life that I have experienced the God of the universe has been in making big requests of him when it seems unlikely or even impossible. I make big requests of him and then I see him answer in power, and in wisdom, and I just stand there in awe and say, whoa, I cannot believe I just got to experience the God of the universe, like shift the world around me, people around me, things around me, me. He shifts and changes me when I think it's impossible. This has been one of the main ways I have experienced God in my life, so I think it's fitting. It's no surprise to me that this is the next thing John points out. This is the confidence we have toward him, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know he hears us, and whatever we ask, <clears throat> we know we have the request that we have asked of him. Now, I've got two qualifiers I need to throw in here. First, God will answer, but it may not always look the way we expect it to, to be, right? Um, I've seen that many times in my life, um, that I've prayed for even good things, fitting things, and God answers, and it's 100% clear that it's God answering, and it's powerful, but it's like surprising because it's different than the way I expected Him to answer. Um, just for instance, I know I've been like, okay, help me, God, to share the gospel with this person. And so I go and I hang out with that person and like they they just ignore me most of the time. But the friend that they brought with them is like super interested in talking to me and hearing the gospel. I mean, I've had that happen multiple times that I'm praying, God, help me share with this person. And I end up sharing with some other random person and it ends up being a (laughs) great thing. Uh, It may not always look the way you expect, but God does hear. God does answer. Second qualifier I want to give you is this. It says, Uh, There in verse 14, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So it has to be in accord with, in alignment with the will of God. And so you say, well, how do I know the will of God? So that I know that I'm praying in line with it, so that I get to experience God answering. I'll just give you two, I think, pretty obvious ways you can know you're praying in accord with God's will. One would be to pray for the things God commands you to pray for. There are times in the Bible that God says, pray for this. (laughs) Well, it's pretty obvious that that prayer is in the will of God because he tells you to pray for it. I'll give you two examples of this quickly. Philippians 4, uh, 6 and 7. It says this, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That's a command. Let your requests be made known to God. And then look at this, though, the experience. There's a promise connected to the command. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. (laughs) I mean... This has just brought together so many things. When you're anxious, you are commanded to pray. So it is in the will of God. It is according to his will that you bring your request to him in an anxious situation. When when you're in a trial, you bring to him your requests. And he gives you the promise that you will experience him answering the prayer. and And the answer to prayer is actually experiencing him. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The, the next one is just kind of the same, just using wisdom. James 1:5. If any of you lacks wisdom, huh, that's not me. Totally kidding. We all need more and more wisdom all the time. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. So there's a command, and but we have a promise. Who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So you have here two things that you can know are in the will of God to pray, and you can know that God will answer, and you can know that you will get to experience God answering these things. So that's the first way: pray the things you know God commands you to pray for. The second uh, thing that I, I think is is a relatively obvious thing to pray for and know that it's according to God's will, is to pray that God will help you to do the things He commands. I mean, we could, we could go on a pretty long list here. Pray that God will help you to do things He commands. But I'll just show you one that, that brings this together, both the command and the experience of God. Matthew twenty eight nineteen, the Great Commission, Jesus commanded all, all Christians... Go therefore and make disciples. The command there is make disciples of all nations. Then uh, moving down a little bit to verse 20, the next verse. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So God gives commands. And here using the example of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with others, Jesus commands us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, to make disciples, that is to make Christians, if you will, followers of Christ. And he promises, I am with you always. So we pray something like this, okay? God, help me to have opportunities to share the gospel. Help me to have the boldness when those opportunities come and God, work in that person's heart As I share the gospel, reveal what I'm saying to them as being true through the power of the Holy Spirit, right? The water, the blood, and the Spirit. God, use that Spirit to open their eyes. This is a a prayer. We pray and we know it's in the will of God because He's commanded us to do it. God, give me opportunities to to go make disciples, and then give me the boldness to, to, to actually share to make disciples. And then, God, I'm asking you to do the work with your Spirit to make that person believe. And become a disciple. And guess what? You get to experience God. Again, over and over and over in my life, I have experienced God in this way. This is one of my favorite prayers. God, give me opportunities, give me boldness, give me words, and do work in their heart. And I have gotten to see miracles over and over again as God saves people. I could list to you a dozen people just off the top of my head that I have Thought, man, they seem hopeless. They're, they're so religious that they won't trust Jesus. I know that sounds weird, but they're like, uh, or they're so rebellious they won't trust Jesus. But God, give me an opportunity with them. Give me the words, and then you do the work. I mean, I've just seen lives transformed. People who are now active followers of Jesus, serving in churches, making even more disciples. I mean, it is incredible to experience God in these ways. Why do I, why do you get to experience God in these ways? Because you have eternal life. You can experience comfort. You can experience wisdom. You can experience the power to share the gospel and change people's lives. You can experience the overcoming tempta- temptation. Lead us not into temptation, right? Jesus commanded us to pray that. What are we going to do with it? I mean, this is all just fun. This is all facts. Yay, Jesus really is God. He really is the Savior. Well, I'll tell you again, believe these things if you have not ample testimony. But then seeing, seeing that, that you have eternal life if you believe these things, take God at His word, that you should, that you can and should have a different quality of life, that you can know Him, the one true God. And that, he can, that you can ask things of him, and he will hear you. And if he hears you, you can know that you have the requests. So I, I'm challenging you. I, I want to challenge you to take God at his word. If you believed in Jesus, then, then start experiencing eternal life now. Start, start knowing God. Start experiencing God. And in, in one way, the way John gives us here, you can do that, is to make requests of God earnestly make requests of God and expect Him to answer, and you will get to see God work in your life. You'll see God get work in your relationships and in your circumstances, and you will get to see God work through you. I, I want to challenge you, everyone, this week, every single day, pray that God would give you opportunities to share the gospel, that He would give you boldness to share the gospel when it comes. You can add whatever else you think you need there. Give me gentleness, God. Give me compassion while I share the gospel. Give, give me respect to, with them while I share the I mean, you, you know what you need. And God, s- save that person. It may not be that day, but God, I pray that you would use this word, that your word would not return void. Pray that prayer every day this week. And I'm telling you, things will happen. The earth will shake and God will raise the dead. And I'm talking about spiritual death here. This is an amazing thing. I want you to experience God. I want me to experience God. So let's do this. Let's take God at his word. Let's pray together. Father God, I'm so thankful even now for the privilege.